Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1, and I'll tell you on the front end, this is much longer than I would prefer it to be and what I intended it to be, but when you cut, I don't know what to cut. So um, it is what it is. I'm going to go as fast as I reasonably can, so listen fast, and hopefully this will um, be good. So in the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and in this opening verse Moses provides for us a summary of God's creative work. Now remember that it's very likely that Moses is writing this during the wilderness wanderings. What else was he going to do? And a part of his purpose was to establish the truth of the person and the work of God for the Israelites, most especially in the face of the mythological teachings of the pagan gods that surrounded the nation of Israel, that the nation of Israel would encounter in the promised land that they would enter into through Joshua, and those mythological beings that trip them up all throughout their history. This is a part of what Moses is trying to do. The mythologies celebrated in worship creation, not the creator. Let me say that again. The myth, mythology celebrated the creation and not the creator, much like all of world religions today. Each day of creation attacks one of the gods and the pagan mythologies of the day and declares that they are not gods at all. For an example, on day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed because God is the one that created them. On day two, the gods of sky and sea are dismissed. On day three, the earth gods and gods of vegetation are set aside. On day four, the sun, moon, and the star gods are also dealt with as being created and not worthy of worship. Day five dispenses with the ideas of divinity within the animal kingdom that God created. And finally, God made it incredibly clear that on day six, that humans and humanity are not divine even though they are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God is quite different from being created in the divinity of God. And so Moses is setting aside many of the false religions that the Israelites would encounter, not only in the immediacy of the entering into the land, but also throughout their history. Thus, biblical truth, as written by Moses, replaced myth in the form of religious expression in Moses' day. Also important for us to remember is that Moses isn't writing a scientific scientific treatise designed for modern scientific inquiry, but he was speaking to the ancient mind of the Israelites some 4,000 years ago to communicate the truth of the person of God and of his immense creative work. So Genesis 1-1 establishes for us a real God who has always existed in an eternal state, but created time as we know it when he created the heavens and the earth. Before this, there was no measurement of time and no passage of time. God himself existed in all his perfection outside of time in a realm that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. How do you explain and understand eternity? It's very difficult because all we know is the concept of time. Our thoughts about timelessness are limited because everything that we know is subject to the passage of time. Well, part of the mystery, part of the magnificence of creation 
is this. God can accomplish in a nanosecond, faster than I can snap a finger, God can accomplish in a nanosecond as much as He can accomplish in a hundred billion years. Think about that. And both are alike to Him. A nanosecond and a hundred billion years are alike to God because God exists out of the confinement of time. God is not bound by time, yet mankind knows nothing except time. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so this begins the detail of creation as God puts specific interest and attention in His creation of earth. It's not as if God just said, let it be, without any thought, without any rhyme or reason. God had very intentional patterns in the way He created the universe. But it tells us here in verse 2 that God is paying very, very special attention to earth because it is going to be unique above and beyond every other part of the vastness of the universe that God has created. The earth was empty and unproductive and uninhabited. It was not suitable for human life nor for the animals or the vegetation that God would later create. So at this point in creation, the earth is lifeless and barren. The features of earth as we know it were undifferentiated, unseparated, unorganized, and uninhabited. It was formless without any shape. The earth was immersed under water and in complete darkness, but the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the earth and there is an incredible intentionality in what God is about to do. Now that's a summary of probably an hour and 20 minutes worth of time. Here's where we go today. Verses 3 through 5. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. And so begins the days of creation. There's several interesting things to point out in these three verses that were, that is our focus today. But as in pretty much all of the early parts of Genesis, there's a necessary overview that will be helpful as we look at the entirety of the days of creation. So I hope you're not groaning inwardly at more overview, but there just has to be in order for us to understand the comprehensiveness, completeness, the majesty of what it is God has actually done. So there's a mountain of information to sift through, and we could spend hours here in this overview, but I'm going to attempt to consolidate it as much as I possibly can. So as we discuss the six days of creation, there are at least six views of the six days. Now within the six primary views, there are a number of variations within them, and there are other views that are outside the mentioning of these six, but most would fit within these six views. And so these are general descriptions that would help us to identify what these views actually are. Number one, the first view is the 24-hour solar day view. This view understands that creation took place, think about this, creation took place in 144 hours. Six literal solar days. This view is supported by the text itself, which declares after each day of creation, there was evening and there was morning, and then 
there was one day, or day two, or day three, etc., through the six days. So the solar view is also supported by the usage of the Hebrew word yom, and that in every place in Scripture that this word is used with a designating number, it is a solar day. One day, 40 days, 100 days. Any time that word yom is used with some kind of a defining number, it is understood as a solar day or as a defined period of solar days. Now, those who disagree with this view based solely on the text, not on the science, but solely on the text... They argued that the sun and the moon were not created until day four. Therefore, a solar day could not take place on days one through three. Therefore, the following days are also not 24-hour solar days. Additionally, on day seven, when God rested from his work, there's no mention of the end of the day, and some argue that God is still resting, and therefore these are not designed to be understood as literal 24-hour solar days as you and I experience them, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now, as it relates to the word usage of day or yom, in Scripture it is clear that this word doesn't always mean a 24-hour period. When it means that, there is the absence of a numeric value preceding the, the word usage yom or the word day. So as an example, Jeremiah speaks of a coming era where God will judge. He says in 4610a, For that day belongs to the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his foes. This is a future era, a future time, where God is going to enact vengeance on his enemies. That day belongs to the Lord. Paul speaks of a day or of an era where Christ will complete the work of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.8 Who will also confirm you to the end blamelessly in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That coming futuristic era when God is going to do something, not a 24-hour solar day, but an era or an epoch, a future time not defined by 24 hours. Now, context of understanding the word usage day here is always helpful in understanding words that have multiple meanings. Our words in our language have multiple meanings, and it is the context of how that word is used that helps us understand the best way to translate or understand that word that has many different definitions to it. So, the word yom or day has multiple meanings, and here in Genesis 1, the 24-hour solar day period is prominent with the repeating pattern of evening and morning, the identification of a day, even though the sun and moon were not bearing light until day four. Now, there's some other ways that some people choose to understand this or interpret it, and we'll hit on that a little bit, but honestly, you could spend a lot of time breaking this down, and for the sake of time, we will not do that. So the first view is the literal 24-hour solar day view. Number two is the punctuated activity view. Now, the 24-hour days of creation activity, excuse me, this view says that the 24-hour days of creation activity were separated by indefinite periods. 
So when God says there was evening, there was morning, one day. Those that believe in a punctuated activity view would then inject an undefined, unknown amount of time between each of the days of creation. The problem is there's nothing in the text that supports this view, especially as we see the repeated pattern of evening and morning that is mentioned after each day. What this view really does is it imposes a secular viewpoint on the impossibility of creation taking place in 144 hours since the earth is allegedly millions or perhaps even billions of years old. So there are evangelicals who hold to an old earth creationist view who would support this punctuated activity view saying, oh yes, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but not in a literal six-day, 144-hour view. There had to have been some indeterminate amount of time in there because after all, the fossil records and all that other stuff, and they want to impose a secular viewpoint into the biblical narrative, which the text itself does not support. Thirdly, the gap view, which we've already mentioned, The gap view purports that there is a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 where there was a primeval rebellion that took place and the creation week that we see in days 1-6 through that are enumerated or articulated in this chapter is a remaking of the earth after this rebellion that is not mentioned anywhere in the text. Additionally, if there was a recreation of the earth, theologically, then death and destruction entered into the world before the fall of Adam, which would then clearly contradict the contents of Genesis chapter 3. So if there is this gap view between 1-1 and 1-2, where God created the earth and then destroyed it because of rebellion in the heavens then this precedes the fall of Adam in chapter 3. At the end of the creation event in Genesis 1, God declares that it was very good, and that could not be so if sin and rebellion had already entered into the world that God has created. Number four, the fourth view, is the day-age view. This view understands the days as corresponding to geological ages. Now, we could spend hours talking about the geological ages and how that has been pushed into the biblical narrative to create an impossibility of creation taking place in six days, let alone setting aside the divine being who created it all in those six days. And again, there's nothing in the text to support this. It's clearly the imposition of a secular view into creation that attempts to assign a much older view of the earth than the biblical record allows for. Again, there are some old earth creationists that would hold to this view, and we could spend lots more time digging that out and explaining that, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory, so we're going to move on. Number five is the framework view. And in the framework view, the days are literary structuring to convey the truth of creation and not necessarily in consecutive days. Now, while it says framework, what would really be a more accurate 
title for this would be the mythological view. And so what they do is they reduce the biblical record of creation to myth or allegory. They're not to be taken literally or even historically. It's just religious myth. It originated in the Jews. It's been passed on to the Christian. And after all, every religion has some kind of a creation account. And this is simply just another one of many creation accounts that has been pushed into our society. And it's really just myth or allegory, not literal and not even historic. Clearly, this is not an evangelical viewpoint. Number six is the analogical view. This is the view that the days are God's work days presented as an analogy not necessarily to be understood as a 24-hour solar day period. Now, this does have significant support within modern scholarship, although not by the majority. So the idea is, since God is not bound by time and operates outside of time as we know it, His work day should not be defined by our understanding or our definition of time. So God is eternal, he exists outside of time, and therefore God's work day could also exist outside of our understanding of time and shouldn't necessarily be relegated to a literal 24-hour solar day. They would use a verse like this, 2 Peter 3.8, to support this view. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day, one yom, one, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And so what this, this work day theory presents is that since God operates out of time and one day is like a thousand, it's conceivable that one day could have been a thousand years, it could have been a hundred thousand years, doesn't have to necessarily be relegated to just a 24 hour period. Now the problem with using 2 Peter 3.8 as a proof text example of how or why this could take place, it is necessary to read 2 Peter 3.8 in a little bit of a larger context of what he is actually saying and talking about, because Peter is not talking about creation specifically. He is in fact talking about the day of the Lord, the era of judgment that is going to come. Here's what this says in its entirety, 2 Peter 3, 7-10. And you could actually go further before that passage and a little bit after it to get the fuller context. But by His Word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for a fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So yes, God operates outside of our understanding of the framework of time, but it doesn't mean that the literal presentation of Genesis in six solar day should be set aside because that is actually true. Now also problematic for this understanding of the days of creation is that the consistent pattern of creation in the creation text is set in the establishment of evening and morning. Absolutely everyone. So of days four through six, 
are clearly solar days because the sun is shining and the moon is shining. Why is it so hard for days one through three to not be solar days, even in the absence of the light of the sun and of the moon? Is it that impossible for God to accomplish that? So it seems to me that the literal 24-hour solar days of creation is the best option because it fits best with the text. I believe it's consistent with basic biblical interpretation principles. And it's what is supported in much of the Bible by other authors and others who reference the literal nature of creation. Creation displays the majesty and the power of God and it should not be reduced to what man thinks makes most sense or with what fits man's understanding. How many of us can completely and even accurately explain the truth of who God is and perfection? We can't do it, right? We can't understand Him. We can't explain Him. How can we conceivably know all of the nuances of creation? Because creation simply screams of the power and of the majesty of God. So a quick read of the creation narrative reveals that the six days of creation are perfectly divided so that the first three days describe the forming of the earth... And the last three days, it's filling. This is, again, a bit of the overview that I think is really helpful in understanding the intentional plan of creation that God has chosen to use, the wisdom that that is displayed in this forming and in this filling. So the forming and the filling of the earth are a remedy to verse 2 that the earth was formless and void. The earth's formlessness was remedied by by its forming in days 1 to 3 and its emptiness by its filling on days 4 to 6. So this is exactly what happened and Moses wanted to make sure that his hearers did not miss it. There's also remarkable correspondence between the first three days and the last three days. Day 4 corresponds to day 1, day 5 to day 2, and day 6 to day 3, and it displays the beauty of God's wisdom in creation. So on day 1, light was created. We're going to look at that, believe it or not, a little bit later. On the corresponding day four, there came the sun and the moon to rule the light, or the luminaries. So light in day one, the luminaries in day four. On day two, God created the expanse, or what would what he would call the sky, separating the waters above, excuse me, separating the waters above from the waters below. On the parallel of day five, God filled the sky and the waters with fowl and with fish. Day three, God separated the water and the dry land and then created vegetation And on the matching day six, God filled the land with animal life and created man to rule over it all. And so we see the form and the way God filled the earth. The formation and the filling correspond day one to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six, 
And then when God had completed it, he rested. These reveal an astonishing record of the symmetries of creation. Now, let's go back and reread Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in its entirety. And then I have some comments about verses 3 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So everything in these five verses occurs on day one. On day one, God created the heavens and the earth. The vast universe was created, all of it, on day one. In a nanosecond, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, the earth was formless and void. It was empty and uninhabitable. And as the Spirit of the Lord was moving or hovering over the surface of the deep, paying special attention on the most unique aspect of the universe that God was going to create, He begins, number two, by creating light. Verse three, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Very, very simply, there is this pronouncement, let there be light, and the result was, let there be light. Now I want you to imagine this. Now we're going to have lunch here today when our service is over and we have our prayer time together. I want you to imagine that you're going to go home tonight. And you're going to go to your stove or your oven, and you're going to touch it, and you're going to put your hand on the refrigerator, and you're going to say, let there be a five-course meal. And it was. Could you imagine such a thing? Isn't it silly to think about? Before you can even think about creating a meal, you have to go and gather All of those pieces. You have to get in a car. You have to drive to the store. You have to go and find those things. You have to take them. You have to pay for them. You have to bring them back. You have to open them. You have to mix them together. Then you have to put them in the oven or on the stove, and then you have to cook them. And you do that for every course of the meal. God simply said, let there be light. And there was light. There is no pronouncement on the creation of the heavens and the earth other than the fact that God created them. But I would imagine it's the exact same pronouncement. Let there be light. The question here is, what was this light? What do you mean? What was... God created light, right? Yes, but what was the source of the light? There's some challenges in how we would understand that. So God has created the heavens and the earth... But this narrative tells us the sun and the moon and the stars, the luminaries, were not created until day four. So were they a separate part of the creation of the heavens, or were they just not illuminated until day four? Well, there are differences of opinion, but again, this goes back to Moses' intent. He's describing creation from the perspective of one whose feet are on earth's surface, observing the universe with the bare naked human eye. He's not giving a scientific treatise that conforms to modern science, or even attempting to answer every question that every man would have that would read this narrative. He's not trying to do this. So if the sun and the moon and the stars 
are not created until day four or are not illuminated until day four, there's only one option. And the option is very obvious. The light is God himself. In Earth's original created state, it was enveloped in darkness. But now it is illuminated by the light of God's glory. This is the beginning of the motif of darkness and light in Scripture in which darkness and light are mutually exclusive realms. Now, the subtle nuance here that is easily lost in the fact that the earth was complete was in complete darkness and God said, let there be light and that God Himself is the light is incredibly woven throughout much of Scripture, in fact, all the way through Scripture, where there is this mutual exclusive realm of darkness and light. Light speaks of the presence of God, the glory of God, and the spiritual purity of God. We would read verses like Psalm 104 too, Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. Or Revelation 21-23, all the way at the end. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, hearkening back to this very initial creation of light, where there was no need for a sun or a moon, God Himself illuminates the new heavens and the new, and the new earth that will be created at the very end. First Timothy 6.16, defining the purity that exists within God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There are many, many other verses that will carry out this motif of darkness and light where this darkness was dispelled by the illuminating light of God Himself and His glory. So in this motif, darkness symbolizes sin and evil and separation from God. There are many, many examples of this. Just a few. John 1, verses 4 through 5. In Him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When Jesus gave instructions to the Apostle Paul to go into the Gentiles and preach the gospel, he recounts this call in Acts 26.18. He says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And then Paul would so articulately describe in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our ongoing spiritual battle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in the creation of light, God illuminates the earth with His presence and He dispels the darkness that dominates the earth. Light and life are in God. Darkness and light Lifelessness is the reality without Him. 
And so the meaning of light and dark motif is further expressed here in verse 4. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God as creator declares the light to be good. God is create light that illuminates from his presence that dispels the darkness that has enveloped the earth and God says it was good. So good in Genesis as well as all throughout the Old Testament identifies that which is happy or beneficial or aesthetically beautiful or morally righteous or preferable or of a superior quality or of an ultimate value. And we can go on and on and on and define the value or the goodness that is inherent in the light that God has has created. So here, light is declared good because it accomplishes God's purpose of dispelling the darkness that had dominated the earth. God knows what is good and he provides what is good. So to complete the description of day one, it ends very simply with, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Everything that has preceded this, God has created in the first day. So God as creator, He separates the light from the darkness, naming the light day and the darkness night. This is what has been called from the very, very beginning of time as we know it. It isn't called anything differently today. And there was evening and there was morning one day. What is very, very interesting to me is how simple, yet how profound this description of the creation of the heavens and the earth and of light is. And those with a childlike faith can marvel in its simplicity and yet be amazed by its complexity. So I want to give you this to think about, and this is really for our super sciencey, super smart people that really love this kind of thing. And I'll say on the outset, this is a cut and paste of a summary. For most of us, it really doesn't wow us as much as it might interest interest us. But the super sciencey people are going to go, man, this is just amazing. I want to know more. I want to know more. <laughs> so this is for you super science nerds out there. To describe all the marvels of light would provide ample material for an entire set of books. What is light? Even the best physicists struggle to explain it. It has characteristics of both particles and waves. I'm lost right there. Light photons behave like particles, like tiny specks of dust, except that they have no volume. The energy of a photon is concentrated in a finite space existing at any given moment in a specific location, yet moving at a definable, measurable velocity. I'm lost. I'm lost already, right? But the scientists guys are going, yeah. And this is what, this is why we speak of the speed of light. Stationary, yet moving. Yet light also exhibits the characteristics of a wave which is not a finite entity. A wave, unlike a particle, exists in no finite space. It has a variable frequency and it may be illustrated mathematically as a sine curve that has no beginning or end. 
Light has no beginning or end. Wave motion, unlike particle motion, involves the transfer of energy from point to point without the transfer of matter. A light wave is essentially a deformation of electric and magnetic fields. Well, don't tune me out. Just kind of listen, and you're going to get pieces of this that are going to go, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. So to complicate matters further, as if it's not already complicated enough, light waves can behave like particles, and the particle, like photons, can behave like waves. Wait a minute. Light is a form of energy. It is essentially electromagnetic radiation, including every frequency from long wave radiation, radio waves, microwaves, and infrared waves at the high end to ultraviolet, x-rays, and gamma radiation at the low end. In the middle is visible light, including the entire rainbow of colors. The different colors are simply varying wavelengths of light in the spectrum, which means... In the singular definition of light, there are myriads of examples of light, and we can't even see them at the high end or at the low end. We can only see the middle part of light. The middle is visible light, including the entire rainbow of colors. The different colors are simply varying wavelengths of light in the spectrum. White light, what we normally think of when we hear the word light, is not a pure color itself. It is a combination of all the colors in the visible spectrum. The appearance of everything we see is a result of how light waves reflect off objects, but the range of indifferent, excuse me, the range of different light waves is infinite and includes far more than is visible for our eyes. Most of us don't understand the wow of what I just read, but the science people will. They will appreciate it. Goes on to say more and more about light that we just can't even begin to understand or explain. But if there was not particle in creation, we could not see light. And all of the light that exists, we can only see a very, 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 very narrow range of light. God said, let there be light. And the most advanced physicists in today can't completely understand nor define the complexity of what God established just by his pronouncement. There's a third century theologian called Novation. That's his name. And he describes the otherness of God quite well. And as we think about light, its simplicity and its complexity, here's what Novation says. What could you possibly say then that would be worthy of him? He is more sublime than all sublimity, higher than all heights, deeper than all depth, clearer than all bright, brighter than all brilliance, more splendid than all splendor, stronger than all strength, mightier than all might, more beautiful than all beauty, truer than than all truth, more enduring than all endurance, greater than all majesty, more powerful than all power, richer than all riches, wiser than all wisdom, kinder than all kindness, better than all goodness, juster than all justice, more merciful than all mercy. Every kind of virtue must of necessity be less than who he is, the God and source of everything. 
God created in a nanosecond. The vastness of our universe. He could have spent hundreds of billions of years doing so, but He didn't need to. Because our God is unlike anything else this universe will ever, ever know. To Him be the glory. In the church, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me?